Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 74th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is shifting our lens. I'm joined by Sue Bongpier. She is the author of The Essential Diversity Mindset, How to Cultivate a More Inclusive Culture and Environment. The publisher is Career Press, which is an imprint of Red Wheel Wiser, which has offices in the lovely town of Newburyport, Massachusetts, where a good friend of mine lives. Sue is a strategy consultant and an executive coach for Fortune 500 companies. Welcome to the show, Sue. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. I Thank appreciate you for participating. It. Thank you. Excellent. I look forward to it. So if you don't mind, please give us a brief overview of the book to uh, get us started. Sure. My book is about looking diversity as a mindset, not as a formula. To me, diversity is about how we see, feel, and interact with others, as well as how we feel about ourselves in relation to others. Diversity is not about matrix. It's about amalgam of human emotions and behaviors. I have lived, I have grown up and lived in various parts of the world, worked for Fortune 500 companies in global marketing and international joint ventures, and had a privilege to work with colleagues from all over the globe. I also experienced what it's like to be a minority in America for the past 50 years. That gave me a good insight about what minorities feel and go through. Based on my personal stories and other human stories, my book, The Essential Diversity, portray what connects and what divides people. And I learned that if we look at others just as another human being like us, we create 
humans connecting human space right away. When we look at others as a label or skin color, we create distance. We, we erect barriers. So one of the key things I talk about in my book is the negative impact of racial labeling and grouping. Americans have been, Americans have been um, conditioned to see others based on race and skin color. I, le- I felt that when I came here from Mexico City, and we're far more than our label. Labels made me feel constricted, alienated, and not belong. And also, racial labeling erases unique individuals behind skin color and race. It creates us versus them mentality, and it also creates, it also promotes stereotypes and racism. So I delve into a lot about what we can do instead of racial labeling others so we can bring people together in a more harmonious way. Okay. Um, there's several things that I'd like to go back and, and add on or just explore a bit, if you don't mind. So yes, please. you mentioned in your remarks a moment ago, uh, 50 years here in the U.S. Um, what changes have you seen over those 50 years? I'm sure some are positive, at least I hope they are. I imagine some could be negative as well. Uh, but over that span of time, we're talking now half a century, quite obviously. Yes. Uh, what, what strikes you in that passage in time? You know, I guess I, I came from Mexico City, where I attended uh, the American high school for four years. And that was in late 60s, early 70s. And at the time, the school was the only international school speaking in English, t- teaching in English. So we had students from all over the world. And for me, coming from South Korea, which was so homogeneous, this was amazing, exposed to <laughs> all different mindsets, cultures, um, race. However, for during four years, what I felt was a sense of belonging. We never really thought about differences of others other than our names. There were, the, being different was a, a norm with a pervading acceptance. Then I came to America to go to, go to college um, when my parents moved to London. And that was the first time I felt my skin color because I was viewed as Asian immigrant, even though I was a student, Asian minority. And I felt, why are they labeling people? We're not that different. And through the years, I realized America needed to have some kind of race-based quota because in 1960s and 70s, the prejudice and biases were pretty rampant. And also we have to realize that to time in 1960, the minority uh, population only accounted for 11%. So it was a very white world. But through the years of 50 years, things have changed. Demographics demographics have changed. In 2020, minorities accounted for 40% of the population. And by 2042, 
it's projected to increase or surpass majority population. And the fastest growing segment is a mixed race, like our kids, two or three more races. So demographics have been changing, and I see the shifting of mindset. I've lived in different parts of the world, uh, South Korea, Mexico, the UK, Japan, and the US. Regardless of how we view America's racism, which what I hear, I see America as the most open and humanitarian country. It's most accepting. But many people may not agree with that, but that's how I experience. And okay, yeah. one more thing, the mindsets have changed. You know, interracial marriage was illegal until 1967 in America. In, it's uh, based on one of Gallup's poll. In 1958, the approval rate, people's approval rate of interracial marriage was only 4%. In 2013, it was something like 87%. We have shifted. Mindsets have shifted. However, how we do go about promoting diversity hasn't changed. It's very much based on grouping people as if everybody in a certain group are the same, and they're not. And I think we have, I see the I see a lot of divide. The reason why I decided to write my book was I'm very concerned about the hostility and divide and distrust of the country I love. Yeah, no, we, we are. I um, mean, it's very heartening to, to see the 87% approval. Um, and you're right, you know, when I look at the census data, I mean, I will put down uh, that I'm a, a white male, but uh you know, let's look at Tiger Woods. He is what seven different, mm-hmm. um, you know, different uh, ways he could identify himself, or they're right. part of his heritage, and uh, that is an increasing reality for a lot of people. So the census data has its utilities, you point out in the book, but it it creates lots of limitations and has its own limitations, uh, regrettably. So so we see some good things, you know, the, the approval rate and, and the fact that interracial marriages were unconstitutional until 1967 is just stunning. I would have been in jail because I married my husband. <laughs> <laughs> I, my husband is a, a Caucasian. <laughs> Sure. Well, and, and I can see the role from your book, um, you know, that the, the American school, I, I confess, I had a very different experience. I, uh, my family moved to Italy when I was six years old. And uh, after going to Italian first grade in a fishing village, I eventually went to your version of that school, but more limited. It was uh, Dutch, British, American, and mm-hmm. Italian kids. And I confess, in our case, at least the boys kind of reenacted World War II on the playground at lunchtime on, on numerous <laughs> occasions. So uh, we, we didn't lose complete sense of our, our different groups, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. But let, let's talk about why we are, unfortunately, in this moment. Is it because that, that percentage has indeed shot up so much from, from 10 to 40%? Is that part of what is, is raising tensions? I mean, what would you ascribe it to as to why we're in this you know, unfortunate, darker moment? The strategy must evolve and change based on the environmental change. We haven't changed the diversity um, framework. True. What we used in 1960s, we're still using today and more of it. 
in the context where America is becoming so multiracial and multicultural, we are we are keeping to divide people, separate people, as if they are different, as if they are some other human beings or beings. And I think when we create this kind of uh, artificial divide based on one superficial characteristic, skin color, I think you create a, t- a lot of issues. And like I said, I, my book is about mind, it's a mindset, not a formula. We are not taking account of human dynamics into where, our, when, where we are uh, challenged with diversity. When we're thinking about truly creating diversity, we're not, we're not thinking about, actually, it's uh, about human emotions and behaviors. Okay. So if I go to the subtitle of your book, you know, the the word there, the operative word in some ways is how. How are we going to cultivate it and get to this more inclusive culture and environment? So I want to allow plenty of time in our, our half hour to go there. So maybe you just want to touch on Let's just start with one or two of the seminal ways you think we can maybe make a, a better passage forward. Um, and then I might have some follow-on questions or comments to those. Of course. I think it takes personal change as well as a system change. Okay. So, and and let's, let's go with each of those. So personal change. Let's, let's the, go with that for a bit. There, what, what might you be are, suggesting? There are like three things I can see. One okay. will be, I call it in my book, Color Neutral Lens. It's training our eyes, shifting our eyes, lens, to see others as an individual who share our common human essence. When we start seeing like that, you create open human space right away. Okay. And the other thing is we can also start increasing our empathy. Empathy is about embracing that we all have human strength and weakness as well as human triumphs and struggles. And when we see others from that point of view, we increase our empathy for us and for others. At the same time, by doing that, we do decrease blanket judgments and assumptions. I believe blanket judgment and assumptions have been toxic in terms of the hostile, creating hostile environment. And the other thing we can do as a person is to learn to increase our sense of self-empowerment. When we see ourselves as a unique individual, we expand our lives. We expand who we can be. When we see ourselves as a label or skin color, we limit who we can be. So if we can be confident and build that empowerment that we are just like anybody else, we're all equal. Okay, so I want to go with that second point because you brought up something in the book that I I liked very much as a possibility. And frankly, in other books that I've read on diversity, no one's brought this up. And yet it seems to me it might be a, a, a good tool that wouldn't meet as much resistance as uh, some more formal uh, 
learnings or attempts at empathy might be. I'm referring specifically to the role that movies might play. Mm -hmm. Uh, You cite Roger Ebert, who says the movies are like a machine that generates empathy. So I'm wondering if you could talk to me about why movies have this potential, as Roger Ebert's suggesting. And I even might enjoy, and I'll offer my own in a moment after that, uh, any particular movies or documentaries that uh, you found particularly uh, compelling that you think might serve on this behalf? Movies provoke, touch our emotion, and that's universal. Movies, music, art, all touches people around the world. That means we share. That means we have emotions. However, when it comes to racism or race, somehow we lose that capacity of feeling emotion, feeling empathy for others. So I use that example that we can, we can be moved by emotions that we all have is universal. And if we take that understanding that it's not just myself watching TV, watching movie to feel it, it's everyone else. And by feeling that, we will embrace others as just another human fellow. And to answer any particular uh, movies, I think if we look at the movies, just feel that emotion, that stories, that joy or sadness, we have to just acknowledge that we all share it. It's not just because we are this group, that group, we feel it. It's everyone. Okay. Well, I, I know in my case, I, I got curious after I read that and I thought, geez, yes, movies really, because, you know, they are so engrossing mm-hmm. and you project yourself and least sight and sound of your senses are invoked. And I think it can it can open you up and transport you in a way that, you know, say a straight lecture on diversity, you know, almost certainly will not manage to achieve, uh, except for maybe the very best of them. So I started going online and looking up uh, movies, you know, that might help do this and uh, made me think of two. One is a, a straight documentary, and I thought really well done and cited in some of those lists I saw, which was the documentary called 13th, because of course the 13th Amendment meant we were supposed to abolish slavery, only to have it almost come back in in effect in uh, the Reconstruction era and in some disturbing ways again now. Uh, Another one in my case was actually a bit of an older movie, uh, 1967, In the Heat of the Night, starring Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger. Mm And one of the reasons for me with that is it's, first of all, just a really good movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, it certainly has a point to make, uh, but to me, it it doesn't uh, override the drama Mm -hmm. and the identity with the the personalities. And uh, you really get to feel what both sides of the equation, uh, you know, what the world's like for them. And you do get some movement at the end, which, you know, we all use a little hope these days. And and that was, that was very nice. Um, is there any specific one that might come to your your mind, or should we move on to the next question? No, one, one point I'd like to make, when we look at the movies, there are actors from all, all walks of life, right? All different type of all race, all skin color, and they're all good. 
So I think we have to move away from judging, you know, how is this movie have diversity or not? It is art, and it, it is it is a wonderful medium for us to feel, to learn, to expand our boundaries. So I hope that people will look at the movies, regardless of who actors are, that they appreciate the art of it. Sure, and then South Korea had an Academy Award winner itself, right? Not long ago. So, um, but I, I do like movies because I, you know, although I've written a book on art and I was an art history minor and <laughs> so forth, I, I think art can sometimes feel a, a little distant or intimidating for for people who aren't used to appreciating it. Whereas movies are such a, a, right. a, a general public medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously one has different tastes for what kind of music, uh, movies and era and so forth, but it is, you know, considered quite accessible, I think, to pretty much everybody. So let's move over to the other side. You, you said if we're going to make changes, we, we started with the personal, but you were moving over to, I don't remember your term, was Organi- it the system? Systems, organizations. Okay. Um, I definitely see that organization wants to foster cohesiveness and thriving diversity. They must reduce what divide people and increase what connect. Every employee deserves to feel they belong and they matter equally. So I, they need to understand where their employees are coming from. Obviously, survey will be great, but these days people are not talking. So they're going to have to be very creative to understand where their employees are. That's the starting point of devising any strategies or programs. But they need to really sit back, the ones who are crafting these strategies, as well as leaders, to ask, is what we're doing dividing people or connecting people? That should be the litmus test. And... Another thing, the most probably important one, is leaders must assess their mindsets and behaviors. Leaders have the privilege to influence and shape the place they lead and the people they lead. And their actions manifest into the climate of a company. And one can be filled with sense of belonging, empowerment, trust. Another can be filled with distrust, divide, fear, and leaders can leaders are quite accountable for the outcomes. So to me, we absolutely need leaders who can who can take the st- step and trailblaze new paths to bring people together beyond fulfilling the numbers and beyond adhering to political correctness. Okay. Of those, I'm going to stay with the one on leaders in part because I was at one point in my career in charge of executive communication uh, for a Fortune 200 company and worked closely with the CEO. And, you know, like you in my career, I've, I've had, you know, a good deal of time and exposure to executives. And I do think they have opportunities as well as obligations to help uh, these changes take place. So I'm going to throw out a couple of ideas because, I, I, again, I'm trying to think about how one gets past 
you know, just say, I guess I'll call it the lecture hall format. I mean, I have been invited. I was honored to do so for Johnson Johnson to speak to uh, uh, for an event. But, you know, some of the women there said, you know, where are the men? Because they weren't there. I remember being invited to uh, an HR event that was really meant to be a, a dialogue, like a town hall. Uh, none of the executives invited showed, not, not one of them. Uh, the HR director was utterly crestfallen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I remember speaking for another group in this case in, in Minneapolis. And, um, you know, I could see certain people in the audience and quite honestly, white males with their, you know, arms basically folded, <laughs> uh, kind of waiting for it to be over, even though I know that they thought I'd done an excellent job and invited me back on another occasion to give the similar lecture. But I, I came away from those three experiences thinking that there has to be some additional and quite possibly better ways to go forward. So I'm trying to think about how dialogue can be fostered because I'm picking up on that point of yours. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering a couple of things. One is, you know, since that town hall did not work in Silicon Valley, what about executives having breakfast gatherings with employees? Does that help get us belong formula? So that's one. I'm thinking about, you know, we have an executive, you know, board, obviously, at companies. Um, you know, I'm not aware of those boards ever having interaction with the employees because obviously they're decision makers and they have an impact beyond the C-suite itself. Um, so I'm wondering in your coaching and advice consulting that you've done, what ways you've thought of to suggest or have read about and pondered thought of yourself that could, could further and, and broaden that, that perspective and that dialogue uh, between the leadership and the employee base, which is, as you said, increasingly, obviously millennial, also increasingly interracial. Um, that's not necessarily what the senior leadership looks like. Right. And we can change things overnight, right? It's been, it's an evolution. And I believe, sadly, diversity, quote, diversity has become some kind of obligated public duty that they have to check the box. And my book portrays diversity about creating better human dynamics, human collaborations. And leaders must understand that their actions make a huge difference. What they need to walk, what they talk. They have to be involved and also HR of the world to create this kind of meetings or I don't, I cannot see how can diversity can be a lecture because you can really force people to change their mindsets. But they should have just a universal umbrella of topics, how we can come together, for example, and invite everyone, not by racial groups, not by different groups, not by men, not by women, because how we can come together, how we can increase our confidence and empowerment how we can come together to work together, that apply to any of those subjects applies to every employee, regardless who they are. So I think if leaders and all the activities are geared for everyone, hopefully they'll show up. At least you start changing the whole narrative versus, versus you know, this group, minority, woman, 
all all white. Forget about that. We are all colleagues. We're people interacting every day. We want to learn from each other. Diversity is about every different perspective that includes everyone. We're involved. And, and one last question there before we wrap up. You mentioned the word activities. So, uh, you know, I met my question uh, was kind of focused more on dialogue and trying to find ways to open that up. But are there activities that you've found that actually give people the chance to feel each other's reality, to, to share an experience together that has uh, enabled some progress? No, because I think people are doing the same thing. Over uh. and over. Because <laughs> unless they change the perspective of looking at diversity more than a formula, more than percentage, more than checking the boxes, it won't change. If you start from the point that's our goal, you're going to create activities based on that goal. If you look at diversity as a mindset, bringing people together, you will have a different type of activities. And obviously, it's not as a tangible, it's not as a lecturable, but that's what we need because people in companies that I know, most of them are not talking, afraid to talk, afraid to do anything. How can you create a harmonious space where employees are collect, come together and collectively push their goals for the company? You can't. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. Fear is not a lubricant for good communication. No. If you're afraid, you don't listen well, and you're very unlikely to move off the dime, as we say. Yes, and it's so, sad to see how many leaders are operating based on fear. They need to step up. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, Sue, so much for our time. This has been episode number 74 called Shifting Our Lens. My guest, Sue bong Pier. she is the author of The Essential Diversity Mindset, How to Cultivate a More Inclusive Culture and Environment. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes by going to my company's website at the three W's and then sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network, type in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and you can see the other guests that I've had uh, over the past year and more. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. Uh, I thought I'd end, in this case, with a little bit lighter touch, maybe a, a little bit of humor. So my closing epigram is actually almost a quip, which comes from the former French general and leader Charles de Gaulle, who once said, How can you govern a country? which has 246 varieties of cheese. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.